0: through the air right about to hit the ground oh god this is death but i'm alive but am i a ghost is this ghost oh god i feel like this is gonna develop into something later
1: but aren't you fine fine. don't you have antipathy toward musicals let's be honest Mm -hmm. right you dislike musicals a little bit right
0: I, I avoid them. So in that way, yeah. But I never have a bad thing to say about musicals. I just understand that I'm not a part of the society that like, that loves musicals to continue. And so I just, (laughs) and they're not doing any harm, you know, like. Musicals don't hurt anybody. Not really. Usually. Yeah, I don't not know. Maybe really. they do. I don't know, but uh, I don't think so. I've never heard of somebody
1: so, uh being killed by watching a musical. Yeah, never But never, like never heard I of see
0: it. people crying and like listening and watching musicals. And I'm like, hey, that looks like a legitimate, like valuable thing for that person. Glad you and
1: Glad it. you had that, friend. Uh yeah. so okay. Well that is about as neutral as you can get. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So okay. Uh that's I am less positive about uh, I, I'm a little bit on the negative scale with musicals. Like I, like a musical's got to prove something to me.
0: You know, yeah. <laughs> just, uh, not a lot, just a little bit. Like when I walk in, I'm it's like, got, I mean, if I'm going to sit down, things got to prove themselves to me, That's right? Sure. Right. And I but, just I, but I'm a little bit more
1: generically in that posture when it comes to musicals. It's like okay, you know, like I'll accept that this is the one everyone thinks is very good, so I'm going to sit mm-hmm. down and watch it and hope that I enjoy it. But, like I've only genuinely enjoyed like maybe ten musicals, and nine of them are Disney, and that's a bummer, right?
0: Yeah, Disney's like a different thing to me, um, but they are technically musicals, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. they're one hundred percent musicals, yeah
1: like they got the secret sauce, whatever they got the, they got, they got the treat yeah. sauce, whatever it is. and
0: maybe uh maybe people will one day tell me like, "Oh, you like Lion King, huh?" Well. Have you heard Rent or something like that? I don't know. Uh, what's the musical? <laughs> You'll be like,
1: "No, <laughs> like, like, I avoided that. that. Is Is that
0: the same? Is that like going to be the same experience? Are like 100 the same experience? <laughs> <laughs> and then i like, I guess I gotta watch "Rent." Uh, they start stomping
1: on trash cans and stuff, and like you're like, "Yeah, dude,
0: I don't think." Uh, Stomp something I can get behind because there's no real characters in Stomp. Wait, are there characters in Stomp? Uh, dude, no is idea. Stomp like something that I no don't idea. think. I thought Stomp was like musical performance. Is it a musical?
1: I mean, like my narcissism tells me that. Yeah, I think Stomp is. I think Stomp has characters in some musical. But well, I it's
0: Blue Man Group, right? I have like, no might idea. Be hijinks.
1: I have no idea. Like my ultimate. What
0: is Blue Man Group? My
1: ultimate like rage out moment is anytime somebody <laughs> talks positively about the movie of Cats the musical, as though and not in like mm-hmm. a oh it's it's fine for what it is. But in a listen, Catch the musical is, is actually okay. Like when they're trying to put mm. it out in the world, like it's one of the other movies. I'm like, dude, no, no, it isn't. I can't, have, I can't have that. <laughs> you get right I, the fuck I, out. That's here. a Dave opinion. I can't have it. I can't let it lie. I just, you know, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, you see mm-hmm. it like once, a, once every few months on Twitter, you'll just see somebody being like. You know, Cats the Musical is not always bad. Like, it's, it, it, it's like a C plus of a movie. And you're just like, isn't this
0: why we cancel people? Like, isn't this what the purpose
1: of that is? Get rid of this person.
0: <laughs> get rid of them now. Get, get rid of Cats? Are you saying cancel Cats? Yeah. It, it doesn't, like, I don't know. I saw Cats once. It was the, on a Patreon night, the movie. right? movie. You watched cats. it with Patreon. Yeah, I watched a movie night with Cats on. And it was bad, And right? I was baffled. Yeah. I was baffled. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, but, like, it's, it's, like, a very inclusive film. It's, like, all of the themes in it are about, like, everyone's okay. We're all okay. Everything's great. Except the the meanies. The meanies are the yeah, bad the ones. Yeah, the meanies are the bad ones, right. <laughs> and <laughs> and then so, uh, I get out of here. I feel like there's, like, an impossible, like, a logic problem about cats
1: where, like, mm-hmm. you have to already like cats to like cats. You know what I mean? Like, like, like you, the
0: actual animal, or no, no,
1: cats. The mu like the cats, the okay. musical and the movie. Like, I feel like the only people who like it already liked it before they saw it. It's like this strange like syllogism where like the premise of it doesn't work, where you're just like, I, well, how did people start? It's catch twenty two
0: is what you're saying. What's that? Yes, yeah, catch twenty two. Yes,
1: yeah. It's a logic problem. It's a yeah. it's a
0: paradox. It's like, well, how did I people start that.
1: with this? I don't get it.
0: I could see that. I just, when I watched it, I was just like, why is this? But I, that's true about a lot of things that humans do. Yeah. Like, I why? mean,
1: I appreciate your, uh,
0: your why high school musicals. <laughs> why musicals? That's what really? I'm saying. Maybe I do have a thing yes. against musicals. Finally. Maybe I do. Oh, It's just yeah. my ad hoc thing to it's my ad hoc thing to go to like I don't understand it and I don't need to. Come into my rage um, cave, baby. Come in here. I got it's a not really a rage nice brandy. No, dude. Really Like nice. I know, I know. You you love, you want me to do it. I'm I not gonna do give it to you. I do I'm oh, not come gonna on, give let me it have to it. That's all I want. No, <laughs> it's all, <laughs> no, all I want because I'm not that person. Just come I'm in. Just not that person. Come
1: in, just lounge on the couch. It's a nice couch. That's all I'm saying.
0: Who even knows if this is gonna make? I, I the hope none of it does. Maybe I this hope is all just of this gonna goes. die on a hard drive. <laughs> I hope. Maybe this is just gonna die a, a sleepy eternity I hope on a hard drive. Literally,
1: all of this goes. I don't like any of it. I think it should
0: all go. In, I'm gonna th- throw my computer in ten years into a dump, and some some random vagrant is going to hook up my machine. And uh, listen to our old yep. podcast yep. daily. The cutting
1: floors, like all the all the loose and be ends. Be like,
0: I knew. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna listen to it. He's gonna look, be like, I followed your entire catalog.
1: <laughs> this, and look at the ruin it did in my life. Like yeah. I lost everything following your
0: catalog. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love that idea. <laughs> you should have cut it. You should have cut. Yeah. It. <laughs> 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 Honestly,
1: good decision to cut it.
0: Uh, yeah, well, good decision. Yeah. What are we doing? I don't know. This is what we uh,
1: Director... Hey, everybody. This is Director Peace Theater. I am Adam Cancer, <laughs> one of your hosts. And I am with my eternal companion and co-host who says his name now.
0: I'm Abe Epperson. I don't think we did that for the last episode. We didn't. We were fucking rebels. Uh, oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Let's just keep going. I know. I'm Abe Epperson. What? This is Director Peace Theater. You get it.
1: Yeah, that. you definitely get it because uh, you clicked on it probably. Uh, yeah. If not, and you got here somehow... A different way. Wow! Congratulations. Welcome. Uh, and this podcast, I wanted to talk about. Honestly, this is one of my favorite movies. Uh, like, if mm-hmm. I had to, if I had a list of favorite movies, and this, it's a good movie. Yeah, this is definitely like somewhere in the top ten. And I think you'll be happy to know I did not watch it until probably two thousand and six or seven for the first time. I never. I didn't see it till I was much older than when it came out. Uh, is that in, like? Did you watch it when it was in theaters? Probably not, right?
0: Ah, uh, probably not. It probably I think I've watched it in VHS because uh, we. <clears throat> yeah, I definitely had. There was a tape that definitely had heat on it, and I definitely watched it on a, a home video.
1: Like, I think I might have watched it because I saw a featurette about, like, and then they had that scene with De Niro and Pacino. They'd never been in a movie before. And it was like, oh, okay, I'll watch that movie. Which was kind of, like, the selling point,
0: right, of this movie. It was, like, one of the selling points. Well, when it came out, I was 10. Right. Because this was 95. Right. And um, so I remember being, like, seeming more adult. You know, it's like you're 10 years old. You're not going to be, like... Oh fuck! I'm gonna get home and watch Basic yeah, Instinct right. <laughs> or something like that. Heat felt like an adult movie that I would be like, it's probably got some, like it looks like a cool action movie, uh, and that's how it's built. But there's something like my spidey sense is tingling. This has probably got a lot of scenes with people talking, right? right? It doesn't and as, like a ten year old. No, thank you. It didn't scan uh, entirely. So it probably took me a few as, years. Yeah,
1: it didn't scan entirely as an action film. I think that's completely right. Uh, mm-hmm. even when you watch trailers, it doesn't really like that are trying to make it feel like that. It doesn't totally scan just, uh, mm-hmm. and that's actually one of the things I want to talk about today with it is like sort of why that is. Um,
0: yeah, but as you get older and wiser, like this is, this movie's my jam.
1: It's, this movie's very good. Uh, and so we're going to talk about it in, uh, a lot of detail today, but I wanted to start with kind of, uh, just sort of a meditation on directing, uh, in general as kind of a lead into this oh good yeah. yeah so like Abe and I know this because we we because we were directors and also because this is just sort of the nature of working in the digital creator landscape but as a filmmaker you are sort of constantly being forced to look through the zeitgeist and find ways to add something to that Right, like, uh, to create in that context, like, to know and comment on what exists in the world in pop culture. You don't want to
0: have a conversation that was someone's already had, right? And you want to have a new conversation. And
1: you're like constantly aware of what's coming out and how does it feel and what is being done right now. Uh, like I remember Abe and I having a conversation about long lenses and comedy, right when I started a cracked around 2012, and then having a different version of it a few years later after Birdman where the lens stuff had sort of shifted. You remember those conversations? Because that was a thing we used to do, right?
0: I, yeah, I do remember that. But if I recall, it was more of this is Abe's strategy for of course, this is how Abe of does comedy. Yeah.
1: Of course. No, None of us speak in universalisms here. It's just to say that as directors, that's a thing you constantly have to be aware of. Uh, and if you want to work in on the internet anywhere... Or in music videos or commercials, then you constantly need to be ingesting and then sort of regurgitating, for lack of a better word, sort of what's cool. You need to
0: know who's who's doing what and what's happening. Yeah, and
1: what's cool, what's out there. Replacement. uh, You need to know because otherwise you're going to make something somebody did last week, right? That's just the deal. And I think because of that, a lot of people who are, especially our aspiring filmmakers, have this kind of romantic connection to... Filmmakers who feel like they don't make stuff that is zeitgeisty. They make stuff that's way outside of the zeitgeist. Uh, And like some examples, like I feel like that's one of the reasons we all love David Lynch so much. It's like David Lynch is never making a zeitgeisty film. It's always some weird nonsense. That's very David Lynch, right? That's true. Yeah. Or like I kind of admire Steven Soderbergh who at the one on the one hand will make something that's very zeitgeist defining like oceans 11 but then after that, it's like now I'm going to shoot a movie on DV or VR or mm-hmm. something. Like he made a he made this movie Full Frontal. He shot it on DV on an XL one, which is like a cheap mm-hmm. camera that Abe and I wouldn't even use. Like your phone is better than that camera. Uh,
0: it's so funny you mention that because the uh, GL one, which was the like uh, the little brother of the XL one, mm-hmm. was my first Canon mm-hmm. camera, and it was what shot the first season of. Um, Agents of Crack.
1: That's incredible. The court that I worked at before I got into filmmaking and went to USC purchased Mm -hmm. an XL1 because they were hoping that I was going to make some instructional videos uh, Mm -hmm. because I communicated my interest in filmmaking. They bought an XL1 and I got into Mm -hmm. USC like maybe a week after they bought it. And, yeah. and so like old school DV, yeah.
0: mini DV, yeah. baby. I still got mini DV tapes in like a yep. huge Tupperware yep. bin at my parents' too.
1: place. I got like 30 little mm-hmm. movies I made for my church that I shot on DV. And Soderbergh mm-hmm. did that after he made Ocean's Eleven. He's got to love that. He
0: jumped from 35 millimeter, probably shooting like Panavision or something like that. And then he jumps to a uh, like $3,500
1: prosumer camera. Right. I mean, you know, that's a decision because uh, that's a guy who's like, I don't have to do anything anybody doesn't want me to do. And he's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. even even filmmakers who sort of fit into the classic legends of the genre type, like the the Kubrick's or the Woody Allen's of the world. Uh, also, we have a romantic relationship with them, in part because of the stories they've told, but also in part because they don't have to make anybody's movie but theirs. Right, and that's very attractive. And then, of course, you find out more about them, and you're like, uh, you know, not worth it. But
0: (laughs) sure, yeah. But uh, I think I I know what you mean because it's like class, like it's like an it's an age thing. They they do what they want out of time. Right, and like I gotta say, as again, making a film
1: that is a zeitgeist defining film is very difficult. Right. So like being Christopher Nolan, for instance, or Steven Spielberg is very difficult because, you know, their sensibilities are the one people are going to emulate. It's a lot easier to make a film that is clearly uh, like sort of drift, like drifting off of or drafting, drafting off of somebody else's headwind, you know, like, uh, for instance, if there's the movie Them that just came out on on uh, Amazon. <clears throat> that's clearly correct. an us clone. Uh, yes. Right. Or like, you know. To go a little further back, Swordfish, clearly a Matrix clone, right? Mm. Uh, mm. You know, and that's that's existed since forever. There's a big hit movie, defines the zeitgeist, here comes 15 movies imitating it. Um, yes. But what's even harder than either of those two things is to make a film that ignores the aesthetics of the times altogether and still works or in like still manages to be successful. And... That's what makes this movie Heat, which was made and written directed by Michael Mann, such a great movie to go back and rewatch because just here's some stats on it. First thing is, not a huge financial success. It only made one hundred and eighty seven million at the box office, which you know, that's not nothing, but the movie cost a lot to make. Number one, you can see that. And it was the twenty fifth highest grossing film of the year. Uh, it got literally obliterated by Die Hard with a Vengeance, Toy Story, a- What a Year, Apollo 13, Golden Eye, Batman Forever, Waterworld, and a bunch of other films that you've heard of.
0: Ooh, Waterworld, that zeitgeist. I know, I know, Waterworld. Leader. Beat yeah. this movie, Waterworld. Beat it. Uh, it's it's that Kevin Costner charisma. <laughs> <laughs> it's that Ichthyo sapien
1: you know? dollars, baby. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Those <dude. laughs> gill dollars just flying in. We, we all wanted to fuck Kevin Costner. <laughs> let's, let's just be honest he was... what it was Yeah, and say that we all wanted to fuck Kevin Costner. Like whose idea was
1: that ponytail? Be honest. Whose idea is that ponytail that he had in that movie?
0: Nobody. Yeah, it just it happened. It just happened. <laughs> yeah. Gods. Yeah. Is that an answer? I think it's possible
1: in that world. Absolutely possible. Mm -hmm. So look, Mm -hmm. it's all, heat was also not a prestige success, like a critical darling uh, in the sense of getting awards and stuff. It got beaten out by Braveheart. uh, Same year, Apollo 13, again, sense and sensibility. uh, And then
0: babe, Fucking babe kicked its ass at the, the award Fucking babe circuit. rips, dude. Babe's a great movie. Don't don't talk shit yeah, on it. It'll babe. do. Uh, that'll do. If you Yeah. That, that'll do indeed. Yeah. Uh so yeah, you're 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 making a good point. It's not I mean, that's kind of why it's not on like the tip of the tongue when right. we talk about nineteen ninety five, but also it's a memorable enough movie, but I think for only certain people. Because it's not it wasn't a financial success. It's not exactly a cult movie. It wasn't even a critically like superior movie. It was like appreciated
1: so. by film critics, but not lauded enough to get awards. Really, it just
0: sounds like it's a uh, pretty good, but nothing right yeah, home about it. The kind of movie like.
1: you forget. But the problem is, we didn't. It has endured. In fact, I think you can argue
0: that for some people, it's well. A, check this out. Some people have forgotten. It's
1: like I think it might be the most influential film of that year. If you think about the way that it has inspired the way exactly. we tell crime stories, a lot of video mm-hmm. games like Grand Theft Auto in particular, very indebted to this mm-hmm. movie. Uh, mm-hmm. The Batman movies that Chris Nolan made, and literal mm-hmm. crimes. There were actual crimes that imitated this movie. Numerous
0: actual crimes. That is insane. Uh, I know. Yeah, you get those. Those pop up every now and now and then. You get like a seminal film that is like. It's not like someone going back and saying, like, you know, Tarkovsky's stalker Mm -hmm. changed Mm sci-fi. It's like, yeah, anyone who's, like, studied a little bit of sci-fi films knows that that's a classic movie. The reason most people don't know of it is that it's pretty old and it's not. It's like a foreign film. right? This is, like, made in the same system and it's influential, yet it's not remembered. Right. It's not like it's a Velvet Underground album.
1: You know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, everybody who listened to it started a band. Like that's the kind of thing you think of as being the influential but not known. This is not that. It's a you know it's a it's a pop film in some ways. Um, but just so you know, like even Michael Mann did not think this film was necessarily an enduring story. Like this wasn't his passion Good. project. He tried to sell the script, which by the way, 180 pages, his first draft. Uh, he tried to sell it in 1979. He continuously was offering it to directors. They all turned it down. He converted it into a television pilot in 1989. They made it. And uh, then, you know, they wanted to do changes. He said no.
0: (laughs) Baby, gotta make this heat. Yeah, uh...
1: yeah. He said no, so the show failed. So he literally kept trying to make it, but also get rid of the idea. Just like, hey, somebody take this. Let's get it done. And then finally... Got the movie together, like got the money together in 1994, and it all just kind of fell into place. Um, so that's you know I think that alone is weird that a director went through that kind of a journey for this film, and like now we're kind of arriving at the thesis of this episode. Heat is also a film that sort of issues, if you will, issues the visual tropes and language of the era that it was made in. Like it, it feels and is inspired by totally different things. And mm-hmm. so, it's, what that means is, instead of being like a bombastic, uh, emotionally evocative uh, action film like so many of its contemporaries, like particularly that Die Hard flick, um, Heat is kind of a slow burn. <clears throat> um, it's kind of more of a simmering movie, and man is Michael Mann is making sort of deliberate choices to elevate his material into something that's like I would argue more transcendent, more meaningful than the films that he chose to avoid making uh, that are his contemporaries. So that's what we're going to talk about, is how Heat ultimately undermines and then transcends our expectations as an action movie and as a drama. That's what we're going to do. Interesting. Okay. Let's let's hope. I
0: kind of want to know what you think at this point, you know, like in the late 80s, early 90s, what are... What what is like what is the typical cinema? What are the? what's the typical like tropes of right. um an action? Movie? Well,
1: that's gotta become clear as we make as, as we go through as- uh as almost all of our arguments do, I what I really <clears throat> mean by that is cinematic tactics for the most part. Uh okay, but not exclusively that. Um That's partly what I mean, and also just uh, just sort of a combination of elements that gives it a feeling that is not present Mm -hmm. in other films. So I hopefully I will hopefully I will be able to make that clear enough for you and the audience. So like techniques,
0: yeah, mostly that's what I mean. Yes, and almost everything we're going to talk
1: about is techniques. Um, Okay, because you know that's what we're here to do. So uh, Mm -hmm, that's what mm -hmm, we're gonna do. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So okay, to start in heat. Michael Mann makes uh, a bunch of choices that are counter-cinematic to their time, and by doing that, ends up sort of transcending the conventions of his genre. So, like, he has a quote, right, which is uh, sort of inspired this episode, and that quote is "Heat is a is a drama, not a genre film." That is what he thinks he made. He made in Heat, and I'm going to make the argument for how he sort of approaches that. Because most people still remember it and think of it as a genre film, and it's actually more than that. Uh, and I'm going to show you how. So, first thing is lens choice, right? Now, if you re- if you like Google Heat on the internet, you're going to see a trillion articles about his lens choices. And one of the reasons why is nothing else looks like this in the time. Okay, so like he shot most of the city of Los Angeles on a very long lens. Like a seventy-five to a hundred, right, Abe? Like did you see much beneath those uh
0: Nah, yeah, it was mid-range to like extremely Extremely telephone. In yeah. Right.
1: And like now, bear in mind, guys, that this is a this is in an actual city of Los Angeles landscape, which means he was almost never on a soundstage for this. He shot mm-hmm. in completely authentic locations. And he it demanded that all of them, if they could be, had never been in a movie before. Most of them hadn't. And still shot on a long lens. What that means is his distance from himself to the subject has to be way bigger than if I was on a wide lens. I could get much closer to the thing I'm filming. And he's shooting in environments he can't completely control. You know, so like he's already mm-hmm. taking
0: a massive risk as a filmmaker to
1: shoot this movie this way.
0: Right. Telephoto is also good for not having control too, though, because it compresses the space. So, like, if you have extras leaning in or whatever, you can cut a lot of it. Correct. So it's it's probably a decision that was also made with like out of necessity. Yes, it's a little bit of
1: both. It doesn't. So let me let me make these two observations because what you said is really helpful. So most action movies of that time and even today are not shot on telephoto lenses like that. The reason is, wide angle lenses, as we've discussed in many other episodes, like the Dark Knight one in particular, but others too, are way better for camera movements. The reason is because when you're on a wide angle lens, you can feel things moving on the Z axis better than uh, if you're on a long lens. Okay. Uh, the best illustration I always go back to this go watch the chase scene in Indiana Jones when he's running away from the natives in the first movie writers of the Lost Ark there's a scene where he runs up over mm-hmm. a hill and it feels like it's taking forever for him to get over the hill and the natives are right behind him that's a long lens mm-hmm. and uh, then there's a scene that he cuts that Spielberg cuts to like right away there where he's way far away from the natives like two shots later that's a wide lens and so you can feel the movement of the subject and also, if you were on a dolly or a cam, the camera way better on a wide lens. OK, so because he uses the long lens, um, we also are not really on the same uh, traditional tools like dollies and cams as often as we might be in an action film. So what that means is I'm not on a dolly much. I'm not doing a lot of cam. There is some like especially when we're entering a big space but like for the most part he's doing a lot of this work with tilts and cuts and pans uh so sort of making the camera almost like curious like the camera's finding things if you will instead of like setting up shots that are flashy
0: <clears throat> yeah there's fly on the wall kind of documentary style yes correct
1: bit. so and that leads to exactly what you're you're making the first point so each of these points i'm going to make is essentially, we're going to talk about the functional reason why a director would do this, and then the sort of poetic reason why Michael Mann's doing it that I hope you might see as transcendent. So the functional reason here is, uh, as Abe said, sometimes you can sort of erase things you don't want to see. That's completely true. But also, it gives us this feeling of surveillance, which is a kind of a theme of the film. Like, uh, long lenses feel to us as though we are watching... Uh, the subject from a distance because we can't actually get close to them. Right. So we kind of, it sort of builds this feeling of voyeurism uh, into Mm -hmm. our consciousness. Um, And, you know, in this movie, that's literally happening often. Like they're actually surveilling people and there's actual surveillance cameras. And uh, we even get like angles that sort of imitate that.
0: Yeah. They foreground. Yes. Tons of foreground. Yeah.
1: But like, We're not often, maybe ever, maybe like once or twice, but we're very rarely actually looking through a surveillance camera or like a still photography. Oh, yeah. They're just imitating that to sort of give us the feeling of it. And what's subtly happening here is that Michael Mann is sort of underlining for us, these are professional criminals. These are not like uh, funny guys or like this is not a slapsticky, bombastic type of movie. This is what this is the kind of person that you can't get close to them unless you're spying on them 24 seven. Right. Mm-hmm. So it sort of it sort of heightens our feeling of how professional these people are. They're the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, the other thing that it allows us to do is the long lens creates a, sort of a companion aesthetic And that companion aesthetic is we get these gigantic close-ups, like we're zoomed way into their face, Uh, sometimes even just pieces of their face, Um, which gives us a, a really big level of intimacy with the emotions of the characters. So even though that feels like sort of antithetical to the idea of surveillance, it actually goes along with it because that's what you're trying to get in surveillance is like this intimacy where they don't know that you're around. And Michael Mann sort of creates that aesthetic mm. with these massive close-ups. And
0: um... it's also like uh, Alexander McKendrick uh, wrote, uh, he's the guy, who, uh, s- Sweet Smell of Success. Like he wrote a book about talking about the cherub mm-hmm. of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's something I've alluded to a few times. Cherub being like this, like cherub because of the arrow, like there's a the every movie has its cherub, meaning like the 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 visual aesthete that makes the movie feel like the movie, like what the movie is looking yeah, at right. as opposed to like a point of view shot or something like that. It's like what is the eye of the movie? and um be, sometimes that eye, and like in this case, it's like kind of got that surveillance uh or in the case of the cops, like the surveillance kind of um aspect you can have an extreme close-up that still feels right, but because the camera operator is still using the same bag of tricks, like slightly handheld or whatnot, it still feels intact. Uh, and so, yeah, you can kind of have your cake and eat it, which,
1: yeah. And that's, again, a really smart filmmaker knows that like makes a, builds an aesthetic that it makes that kind of compromise and the audience doesn't feel it and it works. Uh, now one of the reasons why we need to be this intimate with the characters is that there are incredibly dramatic decisions made in this film that happen that happen split second. Uh, one of the biggest ones is Charlene played by, by Ashley Judd tips off Chris that uh, that they, the house is compromised and that uh, he can't come mm. home. She does it with like a one time single flick of her wrist. Like, a very tight close-up. They don't repeat it. They don't labor on it. It happens very quickly, and he knows. Why? Because we're used to studying the people this closely to find the cracks. This movie basically hinges around two or three key decisions, one or two one or two small mistakes that get out of control. And Michael Mann needs us to study their faces to believe and follow these, these dramatic choices. Uh, a couple other just very brief examples when Chris decides to start shooting in the robbery like the the that right. shootout that is an instantaneous decision and we're right. on a very tight close up we get a single shot of a, him seeing a cop with a gun and he starts shooting and you're never like why did he do that you know exactly why he did it
0: because mm-hmm. you've been studying mm-hmm. his face it's, it's awesome
1: it's so good. Uh, And it also, again, speaks to his professionalism. Like, this guy's for real. He'll go at the drop of a hat. And he did. Um, Mm. Every single decision Robert De Niro makes in this film is basically on this list. But, like, the two that really stand out. When Mm. he goes after Wangro, who's, like, the piece of shit guy that they hire that fucks everything up in the beginning of the movie. um, He finds out where he's staying in the hotel. And there's a decision that's made in a close-up. They have a fantastic car ride sequence with some lighting stuff that we'll get to later. Oh, yeah. Uh, He makes it in a close-up, and boom, we're gone. Um, Same thing for when he bails on Edie. He sees just, like, the hint of Vincent coming. Like, you couldn't even make out who it is exactly. But he sees just Mm -hmm. the hint of Al Pacino's detective, Vincent, coming. And you get that close-up, and he's like, that's it. I gotta go. Uh, And it's awesome, you know? Um, So, yeah, that's one of the functional reasons. Sorry, go for it.
0: No, no, no. No, I'm just trying to think of... uh you just made it very clear that they're almost all for the same reason. Those moments they are like, I know that those moments like textually they feel the same, but I always thought that there was like a slightly different motivation, but it's like the camera is operating. Like it's almost like that's one bag Mm -hmm. of trick, even though there could be, they felt like many different bags of tricks because of the, um, I guess the emotional uh context of the moments are all vastly different,
1: but he knows again, Michael Mann knows like I don't need to do this in a fancy way to uh, like mm-hmm. to draw attention to this as long as I've done my work right. as a director correctly. it will work it also
0: speaks to like you mentioned with charlene like the the little nuance the we're looking because we're like you the film itself like the shot makes me want to scan. Yes things because i'm like what am i looking for uh when you do see it uh the close-ups are like kind of now kind of overkill in some instances because of i think what you're probably going to allude to later it's become commonplace at this point uh to like our our as an audience member, our film grammar has advanced enough within this certain, you know, genre. Even though you know it sounds like man hates that term, uh, but he did create a genre in a sense. Uh, we're so used to it that it's like it feels like it's a little slower or a little bit more basic than a lot of things. And I think it's probably because it's one of the things It's, first, like, it's and like, that's usually yeah, no. They just copied his language. The case with seminal yeah, stuff. Yeah, they just copied it because
1: yeah. uh, it works so well. Like. One thing mm-hmm. I love about this movie that these close-ups give us, Val Kilmer has a, sky, a scar by his eye, right? Like, like yeah. in some ways, a very theatrical scar by his eye, right? Like, it's a very, mm-hmm. it's almost a silly thing, but it's, nobody ever says a word about it, and it's very faded. So, like, you wouldn't even see it if we weren't in these close-ups, right? But because we are in these close-ups, it has that tiny little psychological checkbox that's being marked. Criminal. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's doing that, uh, and uh, even though like that's ultimately kind of a prejudice that man is playing against, it still kind of works. You know, uh, yeah, smart filmmaking in some ways. Uh, so here's the other thing, and this is kind of like the trickier part of this argument: the poetics, some of the poetic reasons why he might do this, and we talked about a few, but here's here's another one: this this camera technique, the long lenses and the intimate close-ups uh sort of gives us two almost offsetting effects, right it's uh one of them is extreme intimacy, as we talked about. the other is the idea of observing them in a voyeur distance. so we kind of have both feelings, which you know as we said, they're almost counterintuitive, and this bag of tricks, as Abe would say, allows the director to basically alternate between those two emotional poles throughout the movie for all the characters and consequently mm. we are able to root for everybody in the film which you that never happens right like this is a movie where you're rooting for everybody you're rooting for al pacino mm. you're also
0: rooting for robert de niro you're rooting by the way when when hank azaria shows Incredible, up in this fucking right? movie yeah, you're like what? <laughs> I, was like, I totally yeah. forgot this shit. I totally forgot. He's this. in so many things yeah. that are like, why? And uh, Henry L. Rollins. It's the the cast is insane. Yeah, great cast. Insane yeah.
1: cast. Re- it really is. This is like one of the first Sorry, big yeah. Sizemore moments, and he he had a yeah. big moment in the sun after Saving Private Ryan. You know?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, because everyone's and everyone's like a psychopath in these movies. Yeah. and yeah. it's like. I and it, they're all unique psychopaths. That's the crazy, yeah. Thing.
1: Like, like Val Kilmer is a person who's like kind of unhinged, but like it's un- under the surface mm-hmm. enough that you don't think of him as a maniac until it comes out. Mm-hmm. Whereas Sizemore is very much your standard, like, you're gonna fuck with me, man. Like, he's that guy, right? Uh, right. and it works in this movie because he's the only guy like that, you know.
0: Also, uh, can. A shout out to uh, Danny Trejo. Oh in this my movie god. Who plays a character named, named Trejo. Trejo. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> like, they just are like, what's your character? Just, you know, like you. It's you like, played, you played Trejo. Wanted, so you. <laughs> You're just going to play the thing that you've been playing. Well, I, yeah. we'll
1: talk about him briefly later on. I will sure, say, no, sure. no, no. I, it's fine. I love that you brought him up. I will say, the close up <laughs> on him when he's dying is terrifying. Oh, fuck. Yeah.
0: Fuck. He did a great Really job. upsetting.
1: Well, the makeup's also very good there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard. And Michael Mann, he's, he'll get right in there. Uh, so anyway.
0: <laughs> he does not pull punches. So
1: as I was saying, the point here being that because we have these two languages of sort of extreme intimacy, but also distance like voyeur, we can root for everybody. Uh, and because we're rooting for everybody, it sort of does this background thing that you don't think about, which is it raises the stakes. Because not, they can't all win. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to lose here. And because somebody's got to lose, that means some people are in danger. Some people's spouses are in danger. And uh, this is sort of like a great locking of horns. And you don't know exactly what you want to happen. And uh, that's an unusual experience in a movie. And Michael Mann got us there with this lens choice is, uh, you know, my feeling about it. Uh, Do you disagree with that? Or does that feel?
0: Uh, Yeah, I don't disagree with it at all. I think it's actually it's interesting because I, at the beginning of your argument, which shows that it's like, I think probably a pretty good argument. Uh, I was going to, I wanted to mention another 1995 film that used telephoto. Like I was like, I thought it was more important to point out that he wasn't necessarily the director that brought like telephoto into this genre necessarily. I think he is, but, uh, we're forgetting, um, uh, the same year in Las Vegas uh, Bad Boys Which came one? out Bad Boys so how telephoto is Bad Boys is it super telephoto very oh, I mean it's just Michael Bay's bag of tricks okay. all the time uh, in terms of how to cover coverage but you're like uh, if you watch the movie and you're kind of breakdown about like the methodology inside the telephoto like not just the lens choice but like why the lens choice is being used none of that stuff is in Michael Bay. Michael Bay does it because he, it looks yeah. good. He, he feels uh, Michael yeah. Bay does it so that he, he uses wide. Sometimes he's not like entirely telephoto. I don't want to misrepresent that, especially when he's on like Dolly's sw- like swerving right, around, right. You Which know, is the bad boy. What shot. I remember of that. Show. But like, but he, you know, if you look at his entire Canon, uh, he is the guy he's Mr. Telephoto in yeah. terms of like action sequences. He loves running, Uh, kind of like when I was talking about speed, that was Mm all, that was very, mm -hmm. um, you want, if you want to show the background moving very quickly, zoom in. Um, and so I think that that's the speed of man is not important. That's not why he's using the telephoto. He's using the telephoto uh, for reasons that you're mentioning. Uh, and so I misappropriated what you initially were like, he brought like telephoto as a choice in the genre. It's transcendent. And I'm like, well, there's other people who were kind of doing that lensing at the same time, but not in the way that they're not for this effect on the way that he's right. doing it. And also like fucking Christopher Nolan, like must have just watched yes. this movie over. Yes. And over he said that before Dark he Net. said
1: that in interviews. He yeah. said in the interviews, "Like I'm indebted to Heat because for Dark Knight for exactly that reason."
0: Yeah, it's just all over right. the camera, 100 percent exactly.
1: So, um, the next aspect I want to talk about. We so we covered lens length is uh, the color palette. Now, you know, these this observation is not like the deepest observation, so I'm not going to pretend like it is. But look, this is a cool color palette, right? This is a, a, a like a lot of blues, a lot of greens. Uh, it's not a very bombastic color palette, like say a movie like The Mask, or uh, oh, you- <laughs> <laughs> ooh, or even uh, oh, whoa there, whoa. buddy, whoa, or even <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, even Bad Boys, right? Which has a I would say a much yeah, warmer totally. and more explosive pun intended. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah color palette. This movie's color palette is very moody. Um, and you know, again, like your explosion is going to look less good on a long lens with a cool color palette. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not going to be as cool. Yeah. Um. So the other thing is, this movie does have warm colors intentionally. Uh, it has warm colors, but it uses them at sort of innocuous times, like dinners, uh, or when the cops are at home with Charlene, or like the dance club at mm-hmm. night when Vince is like trying to get information from Tone Loke. You know, love that he was in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You baby. made it. Uh Tone Look's Loke. back, baby. I loved that he was in it. Uh also that interview scene that he has with the other guy who leads him to Tone Look where he's like, Give me all you holy got. Holy fuck. One of my favorites.
0: Uh holy fuck that.
1: Yeah, just watch. and Al Pacino is like, What are you doing? Uh he's out of control. What it's are great. You doing, buddy? I
0: fucking love me too.
1: This movie has some very good Pacino quotes. Uh and oh my god. Yeah.
0: Val Kilmer yeah. in this is like proto uh. Yes. Yeah, say a that? little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Cuz he's just all business. All fucking
1: Yeah, business, the coldness of him again to use this cool color palette concept. He is very cold. Mm-hmm. He is very calculating, right? Um so mm-hmm. again, the warm the warm color palette is sort of seemingly underlining the wrong emotions. You know, like if you're trying to make a movie feel intense, this feels like the opposite thing that you would do. Right? Like in a sense, this color palette, if you believe in the psychological values of colors, which again, I think they fluctuate, but if they're, you know, in any sense in which they're given or used in a culture at a time, this is the opposite, right? So why does he do it? Mm-hmm. The first reason is the cool color palette uh keeps us primarily centered on the actors. Like we're we're watching them more than we're watching like the things happening in the background or like the weird foregrounded elements. Uh, it sort of directs our eye, right? Because it's nothing splashy or, uh, you know, nothing that, that is eye-catching like a warm color or like, especially like a bright, saturated color would do, right? So there's that reason. Um, another reason is it sort of reinforces the inner world of the character. It draws us into the same emotional headspace that these characters are all in. And by the way, everybody in this movie pretty bummed out about life. You know, like there's not yeah. nobody's having a good life in this movie.
0: And that kind of, you know, that kind of isn't par for, of course, for uh the muted yeah. colors, because it's like a pretty desaturated. Right. For, with a few. Exceptions. Right. Like
1: if you want a contemporary film at the time doing almost identically the same thing with color, watch Leaving Las Vegas. You know, like La- Leaving Las Vegas, also very cool color palette. And man, is that a bummer of a movie? Uh mm-hmm. Good movie, but just very upsetting. Similar moods. Okay. Um, So, again, I'm not saying that blue always means this and red always means that. I'm just saying that, in general, using this color palette sort of brings us these two effects. Now, the tricky thing here that that he's doing as a director is this color palette is actually obscuring two tactics he's using a little bit more forcefully to direct the emotions of his film. The first is saturation. So... This movie is like mostly pretty desaturated, right? It's not like one, it's not one level of saturation the whole time. It's like, just feels a little bit sort of, uh, the colors are a little dull most of the way through the movie.
0: Yeah. It's pretty Michael Mann. This is what he does. You know, like if you watch like Miami Vice or something like that, which is a movie that has like bleach Mm -hmm. colors, uh, the he still finds a way he uses the bleach bypass, Uh, that's basically it's what he likes, but he does
1: pump up the saturation in moments of emotional vulnerability. He does do that. Mm. In fact, there are two very key moments where that happens. The first is at right. Neil Macaulay's house, that Malibu house. Every time mm. he's out there looking at that water, the background that water yeah. is like mega blue. Popping. Yeah, mega blue. And yeah, we know he cared about it because he obviously. Uh, blue screened or green screened uh, mm-hmm. the scenes with Edie and Neil Macaulay, so that he could get that saturated blue. Right. So like like mm-hmm. you can tell they're mm-hmm. actually blue screened there, so that he could keep these awesome shots of the LA landscape, this like sort of dreamy landscape, because again, mm-hmm. it implies there's a dream out there, right? His melancholic dream is still something he's chasing, right? And this world that
0: he's in, yeah. you know, it's not quite a fulfillment of it, right? So there's that. Now. And I think he's doing that in color timing because this guy overexposes all the time. He does. He does love doing that. And then in post kind of pulls back the shadows. And so that's kind of the look because it gives this contrasty look. Uh, That blue, if you oversaturate, you get a lot of white highlights, which would just drown out your Mm -hmm. blue. So that means he's bringing it back after the fact, which means it's intentional. He's
1: also doing that in the scene where Edie and... Uh, De Niro are in the car, and they're just about to leave and get away with this crime, and they pass Great. under that like that the lights of the tunnel, and <clears> it gets <throat> and it just blinds. Yeah, it you. just yeah. blinds you, and you, you know, knowing how much control this guy is exerting over the film, you're kind of like, why do you leave it in? And then you realize, like, oh, that's what this moment is. It's the fleeting moment where it seems like it's going to work, and then it doesn't. Yeah, it's you know, yeah, and it's, it's beautiful. It's yeah. it, it's just a beautiful shot. Again, sort of telling you how much poetry there is in what this guy's doing so the other just color saturation point i wanted to make is the dinner scenes that are warm are very saturated comparatively um and oh. that's because of the second thing that he's doing with color and that is he's using the warm colors to quote unquote expose his character like that's what right. he's doing so just think about when are we seeing the warm colors uh it's in the intimate sort of portraits with the family members the family you know even the gang members they have like a they have like a dinner with like kids and stuff like wives and kids and it's this very bright uh warm space you know while they're being watched right
0: yeah i thought it was like kind of like outside and the streets are this cold like lifeless kind of thing but like the real life is in houses away from the puritan eyes of. There's folks. a little bit of that. That's what I. But got. like, that's what I. That's
1: interesting. That's also possible. But like, even Vince's house with his wife Justine, kind of cold.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like it's very black and white and kind of cold. That's true. And mm-hmm. inside of Neil's house is pretty cold. Like, there's a scene, for instance, after one of his many looking out at the at the you know ocean. Yeah, where that's he right. wakes up. Yeah, yeah. So it's more tied yeah. to
0: the character's emotional like ca- like situation. Right. If it's warm or if it's a warm house, it's warm. right. So he, Michael Mann is using this
1: intentionally, and he's sort of ramping it up as the movie goes along. Uh, a couple other very brief examples. So like Don Breeden's character, who's that's the guy who's the driver who we meet him basically just to give him a shitty job as next con, right, and then yeah, he gets killed, right. Uh, And mm-hmm. normally this kind of character, totally disposable, right? But we get this scene mm-hmm. where he's drunk after his Was job rough. with his wife, or girlfriend, I think right. it's his wife, who tells him, like, I'm proud of you. And it's this very warm, really beautifully shot scene that makes everything that comes after, that makes everything that comes after just totally tragic, you know? Uh, Right,
0: yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. his point, is that he's like, yeah, yeah live fast die young kind of right and
1: it's like yeah he's willing to give it one more shot to actually live and that was the day that it all came calling back uh Mm. and like sort of the final moment of the film like the the catharsis of these two color schemes is during the actual chase scene where vince is chasing after neil mccauley and you know it's in this like empty airfield basically at lax and it's a lot right. of cool colors, but then they have this thing where their lights being flashed at the airplanes as they're landing or taking off, and it's like bathing them both in the warm light, almost like a siren. And mm. it's like a spotlight; it's literally a spotlight on them, and it ends up being the reason why uh, Neil Macaulay is killed at the end, is the exposure of it. Uh, and I think like that's sort of like what we were leading to with this color scheme in general. And the oh, yeah. antithesis of it is Charlene's decision when she warns off Chris. She walks from the warm light into a deliberately placed into, blue light yeah. to warn him off. Right. Right. Uh,
0: which is a good thing to do in your shot to show a uh, change. He does that. Oh, you didn't even talk about uh the 180 line, which is one of I know it's not even a part of that, but like his command of the 180 line in this sequ- in these sequences. Where like something fundamentally changes for a character, he switches the one eighty line oh, all the time. Yeah, and it's it's this is the color equivalent of that. You know, it's like saying warm, warm, like warm color, warm color, warm color, cold color. You know, and it's just like the it's the same kind of drastic change. And yet again, in execution,
1: it's totally invisible to the average moviegoer
0: because the light was right. always there. Exactly, you know, you saw it. Exactly, you know? it's just. And she walked over there, so of course, but now she's it's in that It's just light.
1: like, it, this yeah. is the kind of thing that I, as a director, admire very much. Because, like, they're, they're very, very cool. strong decisions. They're not subtle decisions. They're very strong
0: ones. But be- it reminds me of that shot by Deacons or uh, Sam Mendes, rather, in Revolutionary yep. Road, where they're walking down puddles of light down a long hallway. And they're never... They timed it and spaced the puddles of like the top lights so that, uh, what's her name? Uh, Kate Winslet. What's her name? Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet, uh, and DiCaprio are never in the same, never in the light together. Like they're far away from each other, so they're never in the same light, but they're also like, as he goes into darkness, she goes into light and vice versa to show the how like they're desynced in, uh, um, like. They, they just don't see eye to eye. They don't, it's, it's, it's not, they're, they're not long for this world. It's just really cool to take something like that. That's a film that was up for all the Oscars and such. Uh, and this is a movie doing literally the same kind of, but
1: universe. in, but in the action genre, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. So exactly. last thing I want to talk about that's uh, related to this is sound design, which, you know, we touch on sometimes, but I thought it would be a crime to not talk about the big shootout at all. Uh, Since
0: holy the, the shootout, God, yeah, the, the shootout's
1: the thing everybody remembers.
0: It's what everyone talks about yeah. with this movie, right? It's so long, it's, it's incredible. So <laughs> yeah, awesome. It's incredible. It's yeah. a
1: it's a masterpiece of filmmaking and action storytelling. So, one of the things that's very surprising about it is there's no music in it. Uh, there's oh, music yeah. building up to yeah. it, and then at the very end, they bring some music back. There's no music in the shootout. Now you're like, okay, sure, but think about your favorite action scenes from other movies. Like, you know, I'll pick a movie at random. The Matrix, right? The Matrix, the coolest shootout scenes are also when you get that propeller heads track. You know, or when you get the really cool score that's like, you know, here we go, man. He's going to he's going to be he's going to one it up. He's going to be the one. Uh, Mm -hmm. None of that in this movie. Right.
0: Uh, But and think about in the last like eight years. Uh a movie that with the exception of like uh like something like Baby Driver or right. something like that, where it's like literally setting a sequence or a montage to music, like scoring, think about all of the Batman's mm-hmm. and all of the like MCUs and stuff. Uh when shit gets real, there's no music. Yep. I it's this kind of impulse that and I you don't see that much in movies no. before this Correct. before he,
1: I love you. Thank you. You're doing exactly what I needed you to do. Just build me up, (laughs) you you handsome son of a bitch. (laughs) No, you're Uh, absolutely right. So look, I'm not saying there's no music at all in this scene, but this music drops out the minute the shooting starts. Okay, so why? Mm -hmm. Here's some simple reasons. Okay, functionally speaking, this is a very loud scene, and there's a lot of sounds in it. So like, music might feel cluttered with all this like gunfire, right? Because there's a lot of gunfire. Yeah, that's right. Um, so like, you know, it allows you to not feel overwhelmed by what's happening. Cause there's a lot going on. Um, so there's that mm-hmm. now, the other thing is it's probably the most realistic f- firefight scene I can think of in movies up to that point at all. It's one of them.
0: Yeah. I think of its influence on war zone yeah. films too, cause like obviously after nine 11, and even in the same year of 9-11, you got things like Black right. Hawk Down. Yeah, Black Hawk uh, Down, yeah. You want, this movie, fe- they wanted to make you feel like it's a war Correct. zone. Correct. Right? Which doesn't have music. It,
1: it Yeah, music takes away from that feeling. Uh, music, because this feels almost, not quite, but almost like we're documenting it. Um, there's some really great handheld camera work, especially with Val Kilmer, like all the loading and shooting and ducking behind the car stuff, like... There's some really great camera work here that helps sell that. But uh, the gun sounds themselves are, uh, they feel authentic. And the reason why is because they are. They are the actual sounds that were being made by those actual weapons on the day. Mm. Like I, if I understood my articles correctly, this is production sound you're hearing. Like enhanced production sound. So Michael Mann tried to bring in like, you know, better gun sounds, you know, like ones that are more movie-ish, like Hollywood gun sounds, and then kept being unsatisfied with it and ended up going back to the sound of the actual weapon on the day. That's what you're hearing. It adds to the authenticity of it. Uh, Now, the other thing that the gunfire instead of the music allows them to do is it allows them to stop using sound design at key moments. Right. So like there are moments where they're not shooting and they're running. And those moments are terrifying. Right. Cause it's just footsteps and distant sirens and breathing. And you're just like, Oh my God. Uh, and like they even kind of get away with the, the effect that we might call the, the tinnitus effect. They do just a tiny little bit of like the poetic. Yeah. The, yeah, shell, shock. the shell shock effect. Correct.
0: A thing that's the saving, yes, private, saving Ryan. private
1: Ryan used it very memorably they do a little tiny bit of it for the death of, uh, Don, the driver. Like they kind of drop out some of the sound Mm -hmm. and just hear sirens, uh, for when he is about to die. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a little bit of poetic license given what the film is, but you don't think about it because it's that, that's the end of that guy's story. And like, you're like, no, and you don't expect that guy to die that quickly. Uh,
0: he gong. Yeah, he gong. <laughs> that's it, right?
1: I mean, that's exactly it. Yeah. So, like, and all I can say is, uh, you know, I'm getting a little older. This is the first time I watched the movie for this podcast. This was the first time when I watched it and felt sad when I was watching this action movie. I don't know if you relate to right. that. Yeah.
0: No, I, I felt yeah. sad. I, I watched it, I think. I don't think I even. I, I know I said I watched it, like, probably a year or two after it came out. I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't into movies Mm -hmm. at that point. You know, like I wasn't thinking the last time I watched it was probably college before Mm -hmm. this. And I remember it being very evocative and going like, Oh hell yeah. And when I watched it again, it's effective movie. And
1: yeah. And again, I I can't tell if it's like that now we're at this point in history where there's been so many mass shootings and stuff. And like, so you get these feelings about it. Right. But this time when I was watching it, and it had been a few years. It, I just the tragedy of it, you know, like it felt very tragic. Uh, just all of it. You know, like the, you see innocent. Just everyone getting yeah. snapped out. Innocent people another. getting Sh- shot. No, make yeah. it suck. Cops are yeah. getting blasted to pieces. The driver like made a big, huge decision that like that was the end of his life. And you're like and then like the worst part of it is Tom Sizemore's character, Michael Chireto, kidnaps a child. And yeah. like he is a father. That's why they even have that family scene. He's a father. He kidnaps a kid just to get away. Right. And by the way, Michael Mann knows that. That's why he starts putting music back in the film. Right. You get that mm-hmm. driving
0: guitar riff that ends with another gunshot. Uh, Which another another movie that was like pretty impressive. And at the same time, taking a page out of Heat's book, if you, uh, 2002, I think. Yeah. Narc yeah. Yeah. Literally starts with the this, this yeah. situation. Yeah. That's right. Grabs it like a pregnant. You see one. how
1: many references to this aesthetic you can make when you start thinking about it? Like that's mm-hmm. what this movie is. This movie became kind of a Rosetta Stone for how to do uh this kind of action. But funny enough, uh I would say these cinematic choices actually serve a completely different master than action. And that is.
0: Yeah. I wanted to go get back to what you're saying. You, Cause you said that man said that he doesn't feel correct. It's a Genre film. So far your thesis is basically stated. He's creating a uh, inside a genre, a new format of genre. I call that correct. a genre film. So what, what do you, what do you see in man's words? I guess, what I see question. is
1: that he, is actually making what you might call a family drama out of this film. Like that's what this film fundamentally is. It's not, it's not fundamentally an action film in the sense that the action is not give, is not the centerpiece of what we care about. The action is plot, but the action is not, uh, is not the primary emotional engine of the film. The primary emotional engine of the film is, like the cost that these men must pay to be in this life. Okay. And all the stakes. Yes. And specifically their families, every single character in the film has a spouse or a girlfriend or a kid or all, or all of those things. And Mm -hmm. it's a three hour movie, you know, like a three hour movie means it's time to cut stuff. You know, like when it's an action film, like even in the nineties, that's what it meant. And instead, right. we're spending all this time watching Robert De Niro go on a date. Uh, or
0: <laughs> it's funny you mention it because if you, when you asked me, like if you saw it, I was like, I was a kid and I had the Spidey sense that it was it was gonna be about like some like family shit <laughs> or something like that. And it was like, man, little did yeah. I know that you know, flash forward twenty twenty some years later, <laughs> I would be like straight up talking about myself as a 10 year old child (laughs) just knowing (laughs) not being it just knowing knowing what adam was gonna talk about no you're you're right though you're right i think that that's why so much of it that's why the movie's so long it's it's like some so imagine make let's make a genre film okay it's a genre film let's assume that and uh like so you want a lot of high body count right imagine we got to know every single one of those people (laughs) and like Every single time you rip one of them out of the world, you ri- you feel what you're actually ripping out of the world. They're just not like another crony. It feels like that's what Michael Mann is doing with this movie, which I can now see that's why it's a, dra- that's, a drama. That's what he
1: means. It's a right. tragedy. And yeah. Like, you know, we have that whole plot about Natalie Portman, uh, by the way, just like, ugh, great actor for a kid, right? Incredible, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's so good. That's
1: uh, right. Yeah. Uh, And, like, she has that whole suicide arc that's very upsetting. It's like, whoa. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, like, watching Al Pacino deal with it is also very upsetting. And then watching her mother is like, oh, no. And that's completely just about, like, the cost of this, of Vincent's lifestyle as a detective on this marriage. Like, that's what this is about. And, like, they really go into it. And, like, they even go through ups and downs, like, in arcs within this relationship where at the end she's like, can't we find a way to make it work? And he's finally gotten honest. No, we can't. I can't. Like, you know, like I'm only, I'm only what I'm chasing. That's all I am. And uh, mm-hmm. that's a very profound realization for an action movie. Let's contrast that with baby driver. For instance, baby driver, there's yeah. one romantic relationship that matters at all. And it's very surfacey. And we're supposed to expect it. Mm-hmm. Like we're supposed to take it as worth the risk, right? Like it's literally reinforcing the opposite. And that's an action movie, right? Like that's what they're like. And this isn't. Yeah. It's because it's about right. the style. That's right. And this is the opposite thing where it's like, no, 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 we're going to go, we're going to get up dinners. We're going to have uh marital intimacy issues. We're going to have Ralph, the, the revenge fuck. Uh, we're going to have Natalie Portman mm-hmm. committing suicide. Uh, you know, like we're going to do all of this. And because, Ultimately, what this movie is about is the stakes of this life, and a kind of romance between the job and real objects of romance, right? Which is why De Niro and and Neil or De Niro and uh, excuse me De Niro and Al Pacino the hand holding at the end, mm. which seems very like almost like an eighties movie kind of move. It's not. It's it's like this is the true partner that they're looking for. Like, this is the spouse, you know, like they found that person for a brief period of time. This is the real love story here. Right. Yeah.
0: You know? Yeah. Because they've been after each other for Yeah. And
1: like, and not love story in like a dumb way and not even like love story in a metaphorical way. It's a real love story. You know, like.
0: I mean, it's bromance, but it's like, yeah, I know what you mean. It's. Yeah. In the same way that like a buddy comedy or buddy. Yeah. That would be like our body cop movie would be like they are each other's Correct. foils and they they lift each other up. And they like the, we are following these two men's n- like need to destroy each other in order for them to and, achieve. And happiness. also,
1: the also, though, the need to be understood it's both things because, like, yes. both of
0: them they want their. They want to get out of this. They hate some aspects of their life and they want people to understand that they're not who they just appear to be. And they want a family. They want more. Uh, And they're kind of begging everyone around them to see like, I, can I just finish this so that I can get to who I really feel like I I can
1: find my real intimacy. But the funny thing is like, again, they're, they have that incredible, diner scene with just the two of them together and what do they do they compare dreams like it's like a very intimate Mm -hmm. thing they share with each other right like this is what i think about this is Mm -hmm. what's in my mind at night uh this is who i really am yeah it
0: kind of smacks of like some western yeah but it's again it feels very marital like the doom conversation
1: it feels very like it feels very old and intimate they already know everything about each other um Mm -hmm. and like they finally like finally we meet uh, you know, and that, yeah, I I love that because I think in the truest sense of the word family drama, that's what that relationship is. You know, like it's about the, the connection and obligation of this relationship. Uh, and that's, mm. you know, not new territory in Cops and Robbers stories. Let's be honest. It's pretty w- well tread, but it's really, really well done here. Uh, and it also makes us care about all the rest of this stuff whereas i can watch a transformers movie and basically never care you know because like they they they're not right. connected to anything you know
0: yeah and michael bay doesn't care to develop a scene that makes you care about right. the character he just they're stand-ins for yeah it could be And anything. like i can't say this often enough to the audience
1: who listens to this podcast or really any movie going audience We all believe that we're watching action movies for the explosions and the blow ups and the the thrill ride, and we are. That's true. But you the lingering thing that makes you care about it is almost always gonna be a deeper emotional need that the character is meeting and is well told. Like almost always Mm -hmm. like I'm kind of working on a thesis in my mind and I don't know if I can prove it yet. But like if you were to list like the really great action movies from the last thirty years, a whole bunch of them would be sneaky good family dramas in the way we defined it in this movie. Like Patriot Games, Heat, I think Die Hard, Lethal Weapon. There's a and I haven't done those movies yet, and but I could, and I think I'd be right. Uh so you know, I just think it's mm-hmm. something sometimes like things don't change. You know what I mean? Like sure the times change, but the things that matter to people don't really change. Uh and I think that's what Heat is getting into. It's like this great novel about those mm-hmm. things. Uh, it's sort of like mm-hmm. when you read dostoevsky's like crime and punishment the the subject of crime and punishment is actually quite simple like could i get away with murder what happens if i do that like that's what it's about and but like mm-hmm. it's a great novel because man uh that's a deep that's a deep thing to explore like the pain and paranoia of a of a mm-hmm. mistake
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know uh and i think that's what's going on here as well uh I also just, you know, the thing I admire the most about Michael Mann as a filmmaker is the discipline and precision and passion of these decisions that feel kind of functional at first. Like, I kind of admire the depth Mm -hmm. of intelligence and thought process behind them and uh, hope to one day incorporate that kind of stuff into my filmmaking.
0: I really admire it. Yeah. Fuck yeah, man. I'm amped. I'm fucking amped amped right now. Yeah yeah (laughs) got me going uh the only thing i want to add because i think this is super well done uh is the only thing that i would disagree with only because he's my main damey he's my he's like my go-to like this this shit rips and it's because of him uh directorially i think you're absolutely right i think michael mann did combine these elements in a way that had never been combined before that is kind of the Power and you know stain power specifically of heat. Uh, a lot of these techniques uh, were also used in the same genre by the very movie you kind of mentioned uh, and other movies that he had made. You chose Lethal Weapon, Die Hard. You love John him. You love McTiernan. You love him. He's so fucking he good. Is good. And so uh, the only thing I would just is that like if we're talking about frontiersmen in this uh, in this regard. I got to give it to my boy Johnny, but you're absolutely right. Michael Mann, especially cause uh, McTiernan never ever made a film that would anything like heat in a way. Like he never made that inspection of like the guilt and the, like the, the costs and the wants are so yeah. much more higher stakes. at This cost, like the interplay of like what, yeah, what these things are all doing, the tragedy of it. He, he does it a little bit, you know, but he's blown um, shit up he too. He shows loss. Yeah. He 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 justifies how he shows it, you know, that there there's ways he but he is more of a genre filmmaker uh and he was definitely more seminal in this film. Like he did the telephoto shit, he did the sound design shit. He uh color palette different movies, but like you know, most of this shit is in Die Hard. But uh absolutely right. Um he doesn't get enough credit for all the reasons that you mentioned. I
1: totally agree with you. Uh about all of that. Michael Mann also, by the way, this is not like, he didn't invent this for this movie. Uh, like this is actually kind of his style. He had a lot of it in his earlier movies too, and has kept up with it, Mm -hmm. uh, in movies like, uh, collateral and, uh, also he's also switched over to like digital filmmaking on like less, less good looking cameras. Like, I think he kind of likes Mm -hmm. doing anti aesthetics in some ways. Uh, you know, yeah, which hey, I'm yeah. I am i am all in that. That's right. I think that's cool.
0: I, yeah. Uh like you mentioned Soderbergh in the beginning. They're like, whatever. It's kind of about the people in front of the camera, not about the camera. So this is fine. Yeah. You know? And that's I'm My, I'm into it. Michael Mann's the it. kind
1: of director who maybe people would never know who he is. Like he's right on the cusp of being a person that people might know, the same as John McTiernan.
0: I think that's probably true. Yeah. Uh
1: yeah. The same as I would argue, Sidney Lamette. Like, and there's some really truly <clears throat> gifted people who are in this tier of filmmaking. If
0: people forget John McTiernan, I will well,
1: you love him so much, uh, and so do I. But like, I these are the guys who you don't think of as being like the auteurs, like the Lynches and the and the Pedro Almodovars, yeah. who I love so much.
0: Because they ain't. Yeah, loud. that's right. Michael
1: Mann <laughs> makes softer decisions, and I think that's the difference between mm-hmm. him and like. I guess I I don't know I guess Spielberg or I guess you know uh I guess Michael Bay but Michael Bay's doesn't seem to be interested in exploring the depth of the human condition yeah, much.
0: It's the, it's the quiet ones you have to worry about. Yeah. Well, the older
1: I get, the more I right, The older I get, the more I appreciate that kind of filmmaking. You know, like the, like oh, absolutely.
0: On- yeah, because I'm I'm unenthused by uh. Loud stylistic choices only because uh, it's a fl- because it seems so fleeting. It's flavor of the week. When you start uh, attaining more and more years in your life, you realize, oh yeah, I did like that when that came out. That was very well done, and it was very like cool. But then like people stopped thinking it was cool. So it's like playing a video game. Like tell me if I'm this ready. makes sense. Like at a certain point with a video game, you like grind and grind and grind, and it's not that the observation that you go, N- all of this is useless. I've just been wasting hours into this game to like get that, ne- you know, next piece of armor or whatever. That was always true. Like the the first hour you started playing the game or the, you know, a hundredth hour you played the game. It all didn't right, matter. Right, right. If, if that's the
1: complaint. Right. But
0: like it. it- there's something about when stylistic choices and loud stylistic choices are being made, and that's kind of like the the thrust of why the movie's there or like the story's being told is like, look how cool this is. Uh, you start getting unenthused by it because you know like, yeah, but in like five years, no one's going to give a shit. And, and also <laughs> you know? because like, they, they uh, don't often,
1: yeah. they do sometimes, but they don't often translate to enduring ex- explorations of something about what we're doing here. Now, there's exceptions. Like, I think Inorito's mm-hmm. last few films are loud and enduring in their inspection. Um, like, he's the guy who instantly comes to mind. And I think you could make that argument of David Lynch, too, that his inspections matter. But, you know, like, the classic example I come to is Tarantino, who I do like a lot. Uh, I enjoy every single one of his movies, even the Hollywood one that I thought was an hour too long. Uh, but, like, what does he really have to say? You know, like with these bombastic choices. In some ways, the bombastic choices feel like skipping uh, the content mm-hmm. for the
0: sub for the style. Um, that is, I mean, that's a very dumb. In in all fairness, and I'm I'm not one to usually have Tarantino's back to be honest. But in all fairness, he's never been about that. He's never claimed. Correct. You know. So I think he's smart. He made a smart decision, and he said, like, look, I'm. This is the type of movie I make. I like these things. And Edgar Wright is the same way. Like he's like, Yeah, no, I like grindhouse movies. Like I I, how awesome is Evil Dead, right? You know, and it's just like, yeah, you're not wrong. That is is awesome. Awesome. Uh paying homage to it is like that's fun. It's a good it's a good time it's good for fun. It's fun. (laughs) You know, and so go have fun. And I'm gonna go see it because I like fun as well. Uh yeah, I don't really watch heat for fun uh I watch heat because I'm like this is a, a well-rounded experience every it, like I do have fun in bits but also like it's right. got me thinking Feeling. it's got me yeah. worried like I like my heart starts beating more like I don't get that even in the best you know uh Edgar Wright or Tarantino or Wes Anderson films I don't like have a moment where my like I'm on the edge of my seat, and I'm like, "No, please don't die! Please don't die! Don't kill that person! Don't kill that person!" I, the stakes aren't it's, there.
1: It's pretty tough. Edgar Wright is so good at uh, the the bombast of cinema that I, you know, he, I do experience a lot of the really rewarding, cathartic feelings in his movies. Uh, like he's a yeah. master. Oh, sometimes of, yeah. it transcends
0: because it's yes. so fun that you're like, don't, that I don't want to get off this ride. It, yeah. There's many excuses right. for that. Like hot. Fuzz. Right. No, no, Maybe no, I no. You're right. It I, it I, I, this, I mean, hot fuzz is, is a perfect fucking screenplay and it's a really hot really fuzz good movie. is incredible. It's of the best. Yes, of that hot decade. fuzz is an
1: incredible movie that is so perfect at jokes and so perfect at the genre that it's making fun of that. Uh, yeah. It is a transcendent experience,
0: right? I don't want to shit on Edgar Wright, nor am I saying that like any stylistic approach. Because I know I've said like stuff like Wes Anderson. I'm, I don't, I can't care anymore or whatever, and stuff like that. That does make it sound like I don't like it. No, I did like it. It's just like now, I kind of feel like I've unlocked it. No- I understand it, like, it I've, now. I've yeah. seen enough, and yeah, and I feel like you know, you pay attention, you start to see like. The, the brilliant part about being an artist sometimes is that you can disappear for some years and then you go and do the same tricks. And then people go like, "Damn, that's cool," and they forget that like, "Oh, you played that trick on me before." It's just you've been and gone for a while, and I didn't think about yeah. you. And that's and it's like, "Yeah, baby, use that time for you uh, f- to surprise him." And that's really smart. And I think that a lot of these artists, almost all artists, use that to their effect. And then there's um, Michael Mann is someone who I feel like he can you can back him into a situation where he'll always make a movie that is. Thoroughly yes. interesting to, him. and
1: therefore to us, because he does know what's interesting. Uh, I, like, yeah, I think so. Everything you said is true, and then there's Spielberg, right? Like sp- sp- and he's then he's Spielberg. that guy, man, who like, and I'm not Ooh. even like I'm not even the biggest fan per se. I, uh, he, yeah, you, you just know it when you, know it when see, you it. see it. You go, oh, this yeah, guy's he's got just it got it all. Right. You
0: see it. The package, the package like, is there. Sometimes there. I
1: don't like the performances he gets. It's my sometimes childhood. I think his movies are schlocky and I don't like their endings. But like, oh yeah, man, oh man, uh,
0: like he's from so a craftsman good. Standpoint, yeah. From just everything, right. just like he know, he's like, I know, I do this one thing, and I do it very well. well. You <laughs> say that, and yet he <laughs> and made Jurassic like Park fucking. and Schindler's
1: List in the same year, and it's like. Those are diametrically woo. opposed experiences, and woo, they're both woo. two of the best experiences of that decade, maybe ever. You know, uh, I don't know. Some people, be- some people just mm, get it mm, all. Mm. You know, you mm. can't be mad at them when they got it all. What can you do? Mm. It's, it's <laughs> right. You know, like uh, I haven't liked one of his it's movies in delicious. a long time, but uh, but man, he was he was the top of the world for a very long time, and deservedly so.
0: Just blew our little minds. Just took us out in the back. Et still rips, man.
1: Et is fucking incredible. Yes, Uh, Jaws still rips. Anyway, we didn't talk. We we didn't go here to talk about Spielberg.
0: Oh, you don't need to tell me (laughs) the man who tried to try to change my job back when it was first. The first podcast I ever made was. Being told you can't just, yeah, you do can't a just make Spielberg a Spielberg yeah. podcast. You have to make a podcast about a bunch of different movies. And the our workplace was like, you know, don't. And I was like, oh, but I kind of just want to talk about Spielberg. Uh, I want to talk about 19, 1941. I want to talk about always. I want to talk about all these you. things because Spielberg is eternally fascinating to me. Yeah.
1: Some you know uh, he's like Hitchcock. God, he's just like, one of those guys. Just had it figured. Figured it out. Yeah, he's yeah, just yeah, one of those guys, it man. It was well, really this fun. Was fun. I I thank you for uh, the help. The constant help. You know you're you're, you're <laughs> the you're the Val Kilmer to my De Niro today.
0: <laughs> yeah, just the works. Just the you know that didn't we mention that he was like a uh, like collateral and like isn't Michael Mann like has like several characters who like people who use guns are like next to John Wick, this uh these guys like Val Kilmer in this movie and like uh Tom Cruise in, in Collateral, like they're the the posturing they use when they use guns is like exactly what they yes. teach you in and- in Val Kilmer's school.
1: reload speed <laughs> is apparently taught at Special Forces units uh, from Heat. Yeah, it's
0: the, yeah, they use the film in classes as the, the t- trivia that Which is I like, read. Okay. Um, and that's that really insane. Because that's like, really, Val Kilmer? I mean, Val Kilmer, really? to
1: me, seems like the high school quarterback of actors. Where he, he mm-hmm. he's just very good at it. And he's, uh, you know, ask him to do whatever he needs to do. He's the star athlete. He can do it uh and then you know later in life he had more misfortune unfortunately you know
0: remember mad Mardigan. <laughs> remember mad Mardigan. <laughs> yes remember remember willow get remember out of here Rel, kilmer and willow
1: <laughs> it's, it's good it really is <laughs> okay well thanks good. everybody
0: yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> this has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com smallbeans small beans. That's patreo ncom com forward slash small beans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe or tell a friend about us. We love you